We are continuing this morning with our study of uh, the, the letter to the Hebrews, the sermon letter to the Hebrews. If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 4. If you're using the Bible under the seat in front of you, you can find that on page 1277, 1277, Hebrews chapter 4. You may remember from previous weeks that we're kind of in the middle of a section here, an argument, an extended argument, explanation, relying on expositing, if you will, Psalm 95, as the author to the Hebrews seeks to strengthen the Christians who are fearful in the midst of a growing persecution, and he seeks to strengthen their faith and encourage them through the midst of that. His chief focus, you may remember, as we've looked at this, his chief focus in that encouragement was, put simply, a clear-eyed view of the Messiah, of Jesus the Christ, both in his deity and in his humanity. Frankly, the more clearly these Christians see the deity and the humanity joined together in the Messiah, the more they and we are able to withstand dark days. But the author doesn't simply do a data dump. Here are these theological points. Believe them, accept them, and everything will be great. Be nice if it were that easy, right? Just pop the top of our head open, pour in the information, close it up, and we're good to go. It's not the way it works. He doesn't just give us a data dump. Along the way, he calls on his audience to respond in specific ways. And our passage this morning is in that particular vein. As much as, uh, as, as such... As such, as it is a call for a response, it can be a difficult thing for our modern ears and our modern hearts to process, to understand what he's doing and how this fits with our understanding of the gospel. As always, we need the Spirit to speak through his word, but our need is especially strong today. So if you're able, please stand while I pray. and Remain standing as I read from Hebrews chapter 4. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we come to your word because we need your truth. So often we are lost in a fog, not knowing which way is up, where your truth lies. And so, Father, we pray, give us your spirit, shine your light, the light of your truth from your word into our dark hearts, that we might see you and trust you and walk through whatever darkness you allow in our lives. We pray, Lord, that you would glorify yourself in the reading, the preaching of your word, that you would encourage our hearts and call us to respond in faith to this, your word. Be faithful to us, Lord Jesus, Father, and Holy Spirit. We pray it in your name, triune God. Amen. As I said, I'm reading from Hebrews chapter 4. I'm just going to read the first two verses. Uh, So this is God's Word. Therefore, remember calling back on the story that we were listening to last week, Psalm 95, referring to uh, the time just after the Exodus. Therefore, while the promise of entering God's rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because it was not united to them by faith in those who listened. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Be seated. (coughs) 
This has been an exceptional week. Exceptionally hard, mostly, but also, in some ways, exceptionally inspiring as we've, if you're anything like me, followed all of the different stories coming out of Ukraine and the conflict there. While I was in college, some of you may not know this, while I was in college, I spent a summer in Ukraine, uh, in Odessa, uh, working with Mission to the World uh, and met a number of the Ukrainians there and, and some of the missionaries that are still there. Uh, so I've been absolutely glued to the stories, to the news, to the accounts coming out of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. As I said, I personally know friends and acquaintances who are still in country, some of whom, uh, last I heard anyway, are living in the cities that you've heard about in the news, Kherson and Kharkiv and uh, Kiev uh, and some other places, Mykolaiv. Um, I have, I know without a doubt uh, the, the constant temptation to give in to fear, to not knowing whether my friends are even still alive, to not knowing if I'll ever know this side of glory. There's this constant temptation to give in to the fear, to the sick feeling of knowing that terrible things are happening. Possibly terrible things are happening to people that I care about that I know personally, and yet knowing without a doubt that I cannot affect the clash in any way. I can't affect the armies and the midnight battles and the refugee crisis. I can't do any of it from here. And even where I have rejoiced to see the valor and the generosity of, the, of Ukraine and her people, it's been a hard, fear-filled week been a difficult week. I mean, this is Russia we're talking about. Sure, we rejoice that democracy seems to be winning right now, and of course we're rooting for the underdog against the big bad bully, right? Of course we are. That's the way our brains work. At the same time, what happens when Vladimir Putin and the others of the Russian ruling class realize that they're losing? Desperate people make increasingly desperate decisions, and these particular desperate people control 45% of the nuclear weapons in the world, it would be easy to give in to fear. In 2015, the New York Times uh, reported that television commentator Larry King, you're familiar with him, uh, they reported that he is obsessed with death. His day begins with reading obituaries, and he pondered who will give the eulogy at his funeral? The article said that he smiles to think that it might be Bill Clinton, but then his face goes blank and he says, I won't be there to see it. At the time of the story, uh, Larry King had had already a heart attack, quintuple bypass, prostate cancer, diabetes, and seven divorces. He was 77 years old when, the news state, when CNN dropped him took him off the air, and when that happened, he, really, he said he really became aware that death was coming. There will come a day when he would die. When he learned watching TV of the death of Osama bin Laden, he said the news drove him to jump to his feet. He said, I needed to be on the air in that moment. I needed that red light to come on. But Then he realized that he had nowhere to go. To fight against aging and death, he took hormone pills for human growth, four of them every day. He planned on having his body frozen when he died so that someday he'd be able to live again. 
New York Times writer reported, it's nuts, he concedes. So Larry King even acknowledged that all of his plans and whatever were crazy. But he kept it up. At least it gave him a shred of hope. But in the end, despite all his fearful preparations, he passed away about this time last year. And his legacy seems to have been little more than a fight over his will amongst those who survived him in his family. Fear stalks us. It plagues us. Big fears like Larry King's fear of death, little everyday fears about ordinary things of life, everything in between. Fear stalks us. We go through life in a fog of fear the way fish go through the water. And then we hear that the Bible is clear about fear actually being a bad thing. John says in his first letter that perfect love casts out fear, 1 John 4. Isaiah, in Isaiah, God says that he is with us so we should not fear, Isaiah 41. David in Psalm 23 says that even the valley of the shadow of death cannot drive him to fear. Paul writes to Timothy that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And all of that sounds great because I'm really tired of being afraid and I'd really like for things to, to not fear things anymore. But it also sounds pretty far outside of my experience. Since, let's be honest, I fear quite often. And then we come to a passage like the one that I read from chapter 4 of Hebrews where the author, inspired by God, calls, even commands us to fear lest we seem to have fallen short. And there's a lot going on in there that we need to dig into. There's a lot of hard things there. Since, at, the, at, a, at a minimum, since God is calling us to fear, fear in and of itself must not be wrong. There must be some aspect, some characteristic of particular types of fear that make it wrong or make it right. So how do we discern? There's obviously multiple types of fear. Some are bad since God, and on the other hand, since God commands fear, some must be good because God is not going to call us to a duty which is sinful. God does not command us to sin. What are we to understand in this passage? What are we to do with this? In addition, this passage seems to be saying that we who are true believers, that's who he's writing to, right? We who are true believers might somehow fail to reach the salvation that Christ purchased for us. And how does that make any sense? What do we do with that? If we're going to make any sense of this passage, if this, passage, if this is going to be for our edification, our building up our comfort and our strength in the Lord, we've got to understand a couple of things. We have to understand who the passage is addressing and what it calls that particular audience, whoever they may be, to do or to be. And second, we must understand the difference between worldly fear on the one hand and its causes and its results, and on the other hand, godly fear and its causes and its results. What is, frankly, without a grasp of both of those questions, without understanding both of those questions, we are simply not going to understand what the Lord is telling us in this passage, what the Lord is communicating to those who claim His name. 
Let's look at the second of those questions first. What is the difference between worldly fear and godly fear? And let's start here. Is there such a thing as godly fear? Is that even a category that exists in the world? I don't think it's possible to deny that there is. After all, at a bare minimum, Proverbs 1, verse 7, and again, chapter 9, verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There is a holy fear of God that is good and right, a fear which we must pursue if we are to be wise. At the same time, there's that whole litany of passages that I quoted earlier and plenty more beside that call for us not to fear. What do we do with that? Does the Word of God contradict itself? No. The answer to that, just in case you're curious, let me be clear, the answer is no, God does not contradict Himself in His Word. Just FYI, let me put that on the billboard. God is one and cannot contradict Himself. But since that's the case, what do we do with this passage? And how do we understand this passage in the context of those other passages? I'm kind of harping on this because I want you to feel the weight of it, the weight of the challenge here. It's easy for us to take passages like this, passages that are hard, that are challenging to us, and and just kind of set them aside and say, I don't know how that works. I'm just going to move on and focus on the ones that I do understand. And we call that faith because I, I believe that God is good even though I don't understand this passage. Set it aside with a shrug and go on with our lives, choosing not to examine these passages deeply for the Lord's wisdom. Subconsciously, without our really being aware of it, we probably, that comes from a fear that the difficulty that we see in the passage will prove intractable. That if we dig down deep, we will find that God does actually contradict Himself. Now, consciously, we deny that and we know that that's we, we believe that that's not true, and, and so we convince ourselves that ignoring the challenging parts is actually faith. That belief despite evidence, that faith is in some way belief despite evidence to the contrary. Have you thought that way? That maybe faith is Okay, well, I see evidence to the contrary, but I believe God anyway. But God is one, and God doesn't contradict Himself in His Word or in His creation. He does not call us to a faith that is blind. He has given us His Word to reveal to us, to show us who He is and how the world which He created works. And none of it contradicts any other part of it. Faith is not belief despite evidence to the contrary. Faith is trust in God as the first point, the assumed point in any discussion. Everything else, the whole rest of the discussion, whatever the topic is, whatever we're talking about, the whole rest of the discussion stands on the foundation of our rock-solid knowledge of the Lord revealed in His Word. Not belief despite, but belief on the basis of. When we encounter something hard, we, we don't simply say, well, I, I don't know what to think about that, so I'm going to set it aside. Rather, we are free to approach the hard thing because God is true. 
We are free to approach the hard thing from a secure stance of, I know in whom I have believed, and he is faithful. I may not understand everything that is, but I know that. I know who I have believed. So what is godly fear, and how is it different from worldly fear? The fear which is cast out by perfect love. One pastor a couple of centuries ago, commenting on this passage, put it this way, both believers and unbelievers have their fears, but they arise from different sources and they have quite opposite effects. The fear of unbelievers and the unbelieving fear of believers, did you hear that? The fear of unbelievers and the unbelieving fear of believers. We who know Christ can still fear unbelieving fears. The fear of, belie- of unbelievers and the unbelieving fears of believers arise from unworthy thoughts about God, from a distrust in His power, in His faithfulness, or in His goodness. Did you hear that? At heart, worldly fear arises from false beliefs about God, from an assumption that He is either not able to help or that he's able to help but doesn't want to help. Not willing to help. He's either not sovereign or he's not good. Remember what the author of Hebrews, where the author of Hebrews went to encourage the hearts of his hearers when they were facing a hard time, persecution, trials. He went one place, the truth of who God is and what he had already done. What was accomplished by the Messiah. God is sovereign. He is able to help His people in their distress. And He is faithful and good. He is willing to help His people in their distress. He is sovereign and He is good. Both. When we lose sight of those two great truths, when we take our eyes off the truth of Christ, the reality of who He is, First, we fix our eyes on something in the world, because we've got to be looking at something. We've got to be trusting in something. If we take our eyes off of Christ, we've got to focus on something else, and invariably that's something in the world, because there's nothing else, no other option. When we do that, the only possible result, the only possible result, though it may take a little while to happen, the only possible result is a trembling fear of what might happen in the future. We've replaced God with something that isn't God. And that something that isn't God can't help us at all. And so, of course, we're terrified of what might come because our God isn't able to help. Trembling fear of what might happen. And note that this is not confined to those who do not know the Lord. Certainly, non-Christians can have no other stance. They don't believe that the Lord is real. They don't believe that the Lord is true. So, of course, they can't trust in Him. But in this life, Christians are also plagued by this worldly fear, by a terror and dread of what might come. Its source is losing our heart and mind focused on the truth of who Christ is and what He has accomplished for us who are His people. It is, put simply, a love of this present world and its enjoyments such that we are more afraid of worldly losses and sufferings for righteousness than we are of losing the favor of the Lord. 
Let me say that again. It is worldly fear, put simply, is a love of this present world and its enjoyments in some form or fashion such that we are more afraid of losing the things of this world, more afraid of suffering in this world than we are afraid of displeasing the Lord. Such worldly fear not only makes us unwilling to obey the Lord, it actually leads directly to sin. Worldly fear drives us away from God. On the other hand, in the words of the same commentator, that godly fear, which is peculiar to believers, can only be found in Christians, that godly fear, which is peculiar to believers, which arises from a just or true or right or accurate view, reverence, and esteem of the divine character, a supreme desire for His favor as our chief happiness, is at root a fear lest they should offend Him and occur, incur His displeasure. Godly fear arises from a right understanding, from a clear view of who God truly is. And the fear is not a trembling that something might happen, but rather it is, I love the Lord and I don't want, I am afraid that I have hurt Him and I don't want to displease Him. And so I pursue faithfulness out of the desire to please Him well. That is godly fear. That fear, because it is set on the truth of God's character, set on a love for Him above all else, thus outweighs all the allurements of sin on the one hand, outweighs all the terrors of suffering, terrors of suffering for righteousness' sake on the other hand. In other words, godly fear is simply valuing the Lord in His favor above everything else. Now that doesn't mean that you're going, you're, you're never fear, never feel some trepidation. Uh, about the future or nervousness about the prospect of pain. Valuing the Lord above all else doesn't make us go, yes, I like pain now. That's fun. Let's go do that. Of course not. Fearing the Lord above all else doesn't make you a statue that can't be hurt or a robot. It just means that, you have, that as you set your heart and mind on the reality of who Christ is, the reality of His finished work on your behalf, as you set your mind and your heart on that above all else, then the threatenings of this world, of the flesh, of the devil, shrink to their true size. They're still real. They can still inflict pain, but they shrink to their true size. Justin Martyr, who was uh, one of the church fathers killed for the faith in, in AD 165, just before his death said famously, they can kill us, but they can't harm us. They can kill us, but they can't harm us. Jesus said it this way in Luke 12, Do not fear those who can kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. Instead, fear him who, after he has killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Godly fear, above all else, is a fear of the Lord is a respect for, a reverence for, an acknowledgement that He is sovereign over all else. And that is the beginning of wisdom. 
That is the beginning of a right understanding and ordering of the whole of life. Worldly fear sets its hope on anything other than Christ and thus can only tremble in terror when its God is threatened. Godly fear stands firm on the rock. But that brings us to our first question. We asked what the difference is between godly fear and worldly fear, and I hope you can see that even true Christians can be infected, at least in part, by worldly fear. We take our eyes off of Christ. But this war- the warning in this verse seems stronger than we're comfortable with, doesn't it? Who is the author talking to here? Who is the author warning? What portion, if any, of that warning applies to you and I sitting here today? Now, I mentioned several weeks ago uh, that the modern way of thinking and kind of the way that we structure the world, we divide the world in two parts, those who believe in Christ and those who do not, believers and unbelievers, right? We're familiar with that. Um, But between true believers and the incorrigible unbelievers, and that is... True, the reality of our concept of the world divided that way is true as far as it goes. Um, when, we, uh, uh, when we look at the, the, the world as divided in that way on the basis of belief, we get to this passage and we're left with only two options. Either this is a nonsensical warning, a warning to those who have true faith and therefore are assured of their salvation, and so the warning doesn't apply even though it is applied to them. That's nonsensical. Or an option that's demonic. They have true faith, but they could lose it. That somehow their fear could drive them out of Christ's blood and overcome His work on the cross for them, and that's simply demonic. But what do we do? How do we understand what's going on here? Either we must say that this isn't a real warning, it's simply a rhetorical move, that the author is rhetorically inventing a category that can't actually exist in real life, someone who has true faith but then loses it. Or we must accept that there's no assurance of grace in this life. The former is nonsensical. Why would the author invent a category that can't exist? The latter is, as I said, it's demonic. Denying the efficacy, the effectiveness of Christ's work. So what do we do with this? The reality is that our concept of the world is divided between true believers and the incorrigible unbelievers, the unchangeable unbelievers. It's true as far as it goes, but for us to divide the world in that way requires an assumption that we can see hearts as clearly as God does. That I can look at your heart and give an accurate account of whether you truly believe or not. And that's bonkers. That's foolish. It is a relatively recent phenomenon, honestly, to look at the world that way. Uh, Until very recently, historically speaking, Christians looked at the world not as divided between those who believe and those who don't, but as divided between those who profess faith and those who don't. And that's a very different standard, isn't it? That clears up if we look at this passage from that perspective, talking about those who profess faith versus those who don't. That clears up the struggle that we have. Um, 
we are no longer forced into one of two intractable positions. And interestingly, when we start to look at the world in this way between those who profess faith and those who don't, it allows us to see a broader application of this passage. It actually speaks to different categories of people, different warnings in the same words. For the one who does not profess faith in Christ, for the one who does not profess faith in Christ, the warning here is obvious. Repent of your, biblically speaking, foolishness. Repent of your faithlessness, lest you be found to be separated from God on the last day and come short of the salvation which he purchased for his children. If you are here today and you have not professed faith in Christ's work on the cross as effective to cover and cleanse you from your sin, to blot out your sins and make you righteous before a holy God, entirely His work and none of your own, then you need to fear. You need to be trembling in fear lest you come short and be cast into hell lest you not enter into the rest that the Lord has promised for His children. A rest which, or or a peace, which will be complete and full in that day, but which has already begun now, which we have the first fruits of in this time. How How else could Justin Martyr have said, they can kill us, but they can't harm us, unless the peace of God had begun, even if it wasn't completely fulfilled. You don't land there without the peace of Christ. It's just not possible. But just as the gospel message is an aroma of life to those who are being saved and at the same time an aroma of death to those who are perishing, this warning functions differently for different people. For the one who does profess faith in Christ, there are actually two different warnings. In both cases, the warnings are rooted in grace. And grace, the end, the goal of grace is always sanctification, holiness, growing in holiness. The goal of the warnings is to bring those who profess faith in Christ closer to the Lord, to cause them to depend more deeply on Him and on His character and on His actions on their behalf. Verse 2 reminds us that even those who profess faith can miss out on the blessings of God in this life if not in the next life. Good news from God came to the Exodus generation. You'll remember that's what the therefore is referring back to. The events of the Exodus generation coming to the edge of the promised land and then balking at the size and the military prowess of those who, the Canaanites who were in the land. The good news of God's work came to them, but it didn't have any good effect for them. They didn't receive the blessings because it was not united in faith in their hearts. They, as a people, chose fear of the world over fear of the Lord, and they died in the wilderness. They did not enter into the promised land. Now, were they cast off completely? No, of course they weren't. The Lord went with them day and night, provided shelter in the sun during the day and shelter from the cold during the night. He uh, provided manna and eventually meat to eat. He provided water in the desert. The Lord blessed them and did not abandon His people despite their sin. And even though that generation did not receive the blessing of living in the land flowing with milk and honey, 
the Lord, they were still blessed by God. The Lord did not abandon His people. We who profess faith in Christ and actually possess faith in Christ, we who profess and possess faith in Christ, fear with a godly fear lest we displease the Lord in our faithlessness and fail to reach the fullness of His peace in this life. We do not fear that we will be cast into the outer darkness, for our security does not depend on how well we believe. Our security depends on how well Christ died in our place, and He did that perfectly. That said, while, we, while the, the work is finished and we can neither add to it nor take away from it, we long to be pleasing servants to Him in this life, and so we fear lest we displease Him. And that holy, that holy fear drives us on to holiness, to sanctification, drives us to seek with every fiber of our being to do what pleases the Lord because He has redeemed us from the pit. To do to seek with all of our existence to do that which is pleasing to the Lord because He has already redeemed us, that we not be displeasing servants of Him. If you've been following closely, you'll note that there is actually one more category of people. Those who profess faith but do not possess And that can be either those who profess faith hypocritically, knowing that they don't actually believe, but wanting the superficial, timely, worldly, whatever benefits, the societal benefits of being a member of the church. Uh, that has, seems to have decreased dramatically in this country in recent years uh, the, as those societal benefits of being in the church have decreased. Frankly, in, in Utah, that's never really been a big thing for the Christian church because those societal benefits attached to being in the Mormon church, right? So that wasn't really an issue here. Um, but the other possibility is for those who are self-deluded. Those who profess faith honestly, believing that they have faith, but don't actually trust in Christ, have believed some lie about who He is. For those, the warning is similar to the non-professor, repent and believe lest you actually fall short. And also similar to the true believer, fear the Lord above all else and pursue His holiness in your life so that He may have mercy on you and give you true faith. Here's the truth. Wherever you are in your walk with the Lord, whether far from Him and knowing that you're far from Him, or not far at all, or somewhere in the middle, the author of Hebrews calls you to this. Trust the promise of God. Trust the promise of God. You have heard God's promise through Christ that rest, that peace, that freedom from sin, freedom to love and be loved by God is available simply for asking. That holiness is available and it can actually be achieved simply by trusting His work on your behalf and striving for it by His Spirit. But simply hearing the promise, even hearing it often, 
isn't enough to receive the promised blessings yourself. Hearing must be united to faith in you. It is by believing a truth that it becomes effective in your life, just as it is by digesting food that the food actually becomes nutritious for you. There are medical conditions where you eat and your body doesn't digest properly, so you get no value from the food and you starve to death despite eating three square meals a day. Fear lest that be true of you spiritually. Pursue His grace, trusting in the finished work of Christ for your sin and not your own works in any way. Receive the benefit of the promise, for He who promised is faithful. Receive the benefit of the promise that you have heard by uniting faith, true faith, with your hearing. This is the warning. Hope and fear rolled into one. Godly fear, trusting the Lord and desiring not to displease Him, and hope, trust, faith in Him, that He who promised is faithful. And what He promised, He will accomplish for those who are His. Let us pursue Christ with all that is in us, trusting Him to bring us safely home to bring us into the fullness of His peace and His rest. For He who promised is faithful. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your grace. We thank You for Your warning, calling us to faithfulness, calling us to a faithfulness that is uncomfortable perhaps, calling us to re-examine our hearts again and again and again, to flee from false fear, from worldly fear, where it has infested our hearts, where it has infested our lives and our minds, and to pursue godly fear, that we might be be pleasing servants of you. Lord Jesus, fill us with with true faith, with true belief in your finished work. Cause us by your grace to come home into the rest that you have promised. Unite us by faith to yourself that we might receive what you earned for us. May your name be praised in us as we pursue faithfulness. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.